Hello, and welcome to Contemplative Episcopalian, a podcast of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. I am Father T.J. Humphrey, and for this podcast, I'm going to share with you the sermon that I preached on October 13th, 2019. It is called Life Together. A reading from Second Kings. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with a prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God? To give death or life? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry, and he went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more... When all he said to you was, Wash and be clean. So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan River, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. The word of the Lord. Jesus says, Anyone who would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. During my first week of seminary, a group of male students took it upon themselves to play heresy police with our incoming class. They singled out each person in my class and they asked us a question that was meant to serve as a line in the sand, a test of true orthodoxy. They wanted to weed out the goats from the sheep, the chaff from the wheat, so to speak. So during this first week, three upperclassmen singled me out on three different occasions to grill me on my thoughts on women's ordination. In other words, did I believe that women can be ordained as ministers or not? 
Now, to be certain, these guys, they were not in it for the dialogue, for a good and mutually beneficial discussion. And how you answered their question determined how you would be treated by them from that point forward. That was evident enough. Well, let's just say that I did not give them the answer that they wanted. I told them that God calls who God calls, and that the women ministers that I have had the privilege of knowing in my life have been the most spirit-filled, awe-inspiring, and amazing ministers that I have ever known. I shared with these guys my confusion over why people were still debating as to whether or not women can be called as ministers, um, especially in a tradition where we have been ordaining women for, hello, <laughs> a very long time now, or quite some time, longer than many traditions at least. And I also shared with them my outrage over the fact that I have personally known two women in my life who are clearly, very clearly called and gifted for the priesthood but who have been denied this calling because of the male-dominated traditions that they belong to. Let's just say that these students, these guys, they didn't accept my answer, and they found in me and half of my class the heretics that they were looking for. From that week forward, they beamed with a sort of pride because they had a holy war that they could wage against us during the final year or two of their seminary experience. And they certainly waged it. They made a witch hunt out of it, actually. And they made seminary life unnecessarily difficult on us and our families, and especially, especially on the female students who were at the school. They went out of their way to make us all feel like we were outsiders. And they were always on the prowl, waiting for us to say something, to say something and to screw up somewhere so that they can use something against us later on. <laughs> Toward the end, towards the end of my time in seminary, a few of the priests in our diocese, you know, they kind of scratched their heads and looked at me and asked, why did I go to that school? <laughs> why did I go there to begin with? Perhaps I should have gone somewhere else. Perhaps I should have transferred. And they asked me if I regretted going to the school that I went to. Now, while there are probably a million reasons why I should have regretted going there, there was one predominant reason why I didn't, and it was this. It took real work, real work, to kneel at the altar rail during worship with these particular students day in and day out, every single day, y'all, <laughs> every day. It took real work, but that work paid off. I couldn't just let their immature or degrading remarks go, nor could I let my heart simmer with unresolved rage towards them. I had to cling to a depth of prayer that would radically transform and heal me. I had to discover how to pray in such a way where I would learn how to forgive somebody very, very quickly. And I couldn't let the sun go down on my anger because I was going to have to kneel next to that person I was angry with the very next morning in chapel. And I've learned the hard way over the years that you cannot come to the altar rail with hatred towards anybody in your heart, especially when that person is in the same room as you. You cannot come with that sort of demeanor to the rail without doing tremendous amounts of damage to yourself in the process. 
So during this time, I had to learn to love my enemy in order to receive the Eucharist together with them. Life in community, life in church, it's very often a tremendous gift, an exceptional blessing. Church people can be so awesome sometimes. But sometimes, church people, well, they can really suck. (laughs) Sometimes life in community, life in church, is hard. And we don't have to pretend that this is not the case. This isn't heaven yet, and we do ourselves a tremendous disservice by pretending that it is sometimes. Now, I imagine that many of us have skipped a service or two over the years because of that one thing that that one person said at that one time, or perhaps those many things that that one person continues to say all the time. But I imagine that we've skipped on several occasions just because we didn't feel like dealing with that particular person. (laughs) There's a, a priest in our diocese who used to be a Roman Catholic monk. He told me the story once of what his spiritual director said to him whenever he first entered the monastic life. The spiritual director said, Brother, (laughs) someday some of the people in your monastery, they will rejoice when you are dead. (laughs) In other words, life and community is difficult. And one day when you are gone, there will be certain people who will feel like a burden has been lifted from them and that life and community is not quite so hard anymore because they aren't going to have to put up with you any longer. I know that this sounds very harsh. (laughs) The first time that I heard it, I immediately reacted against it and felt like it was such a hard saying, too harsh. But then I lived life in intimate community for three years, and, well, now I get it. (laughs) And this thing, it's the saying, it sounds harsh until you realize that it also works in the opposite direction. Not that you would ever wish anybody uh, any harm, Not that you would ever wish anybody's demise. It's not that at all in the slightest. But it's just that someday you too will rejoice when you don't have to put up with certain people anymore. But here's the deal, and this is the most important part of it all. You can still love people right now while you look forward to the day when you won't have to deal with all of their shenanigans anymore. And yes, I am making this the official theological term for the stupid things that church people do, shenanigans. And in the meantime, you don't have to play, I mean, in the meantime, you have to play with the hand that you've been dealt in life. You have to live with the people who are around you. And in this church, these are your people. You are baptized into this community you receive the sacraments of Christ shoulder to shoulder from this altar rail. These are the people that God has put in your path, and God has put you in theirs as well. Yes, you can grumble. Yes, you can gossip. Yes, you can complain. You can bellyache. Or or you can do the hard work and let life together catapult you into a new level of holiness, one that you've never known before. This is why we have each other. And as unpopular as this statement is, 
This is also why we need organized religion and why it's so necessary for us even today. Because we need others to sharpen us. And you can still be sharpened whether or not that person is a positive or negative influence in your life. You can react together with them or you can react against them. But the only way that you won't get sharpened is if you refuse to play the game. If you refuse relationships, refuse community, refuse the church. Whenever we approach the Old Testament reading for today with all of this in mind, there's a lot of wisdom that we can glean from the story. We are often, perhaps more than we'd like to admit, Naaman standing on Elisha's doorstep. Naaman is a very powerful person, but he's not without his ailments. The story is quite clear that he is suffering from leprosy, but it's also quite clear that his worst ailment is his pride. But he takes a wild chance on this weird guy named Elisha, and he does so with the hopes that a, the, a relationship with this guy will somehow lead to the full restoration of his health. But as Naaman is making his way with all of his chariots and all of his horsemen, a grand and spectacular royal procession, as he's doing this to Elisha's place, Elisha doesn't even come out <laughs> to greet or to instruct him. Elisha doesn't even bother. Rather, to Naaman's outrage, Elisha sends his messenger, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and yeah, yeah, you'll be healed. <laughs> Naaman becomes furious. Elisha should have come out of his tent to personally greet me and to wave his hand over me, abracadabra, poof, be healed. He should have done that to heal me. Doesn't he know who I am? And the Jordan River, have you seen it? It's a dump. If he was just going to instruct me to wash in a river, why didn't he just tell me to wash in the rivers closer to my own home? They are far better and much prettier, aren't they? This moment with Elisha did not meet Naaman's preconceived expectations of what the healing experience was going to look like. And so Naaman started to make his way home in disgust. Who needs this crap? I'm going home. Yet his servants stopped him in his tracks and they said, wisely, if the prophet would have instructed you to do something really difficult for your healing, you surely would have done it, right? but he's actually given you a very, very simple method for your healing. Like, why not give it a chance? Why not try it? And Naaman's heart softens, and he decides to try it. And he goes to the Jordan, and he's healed. My friends, <laughs> life with the people of God is oftentimes not what we expect it to be. We have this preconceived expectation for what the perfect church should look like and be like. Well, and then we look up and we see the people around us and we see this hot mess and we realize the reality doesn't quite meet our expectations. And we often strut in on Sunday mornings with all of our chariots and all of our horses, but we leave bitter at the end of the morning because people, well, they don't quite seem to recognize just how important we are. If only this person knew who I was, they wouldn't say these types of things around me, and they would refrain from doing these types of shenanigans around me. 
or my personal favorite, if only this person knew who I was, they would do churchy stuff exactly how I think churchy stuff should be done. When our pride is hurt, we start to put one foot out the door and we say, this place is a dump. I don't need this crap. I'm going to the other church across town. Are not the waters of Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus and the rivers of the Congregationalists and the Lutherans, are they not better than all of the waters of St. Paul's? Could I not wash in them and be clean? But as that old wisdom saying goes, wherever you go, well, there you are. (laughs) You can't escape yourself. If you can't deal with life and community here, I hate to tell you this, you're not going to be able to deal with it elsewhere. If you are prone to running from difficult relationships here, you're going to be no less prone to doing it over there, wherever over there is. The truth is, and this is perhaps the least popular message that can be gleaned from the gospel, the truth is is that we are most like Christ whenever we put up with the difficulties that religious people put upon us. It wasn't the godless or the heathens but the people of God who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We are most like Christ whenever the people from our own tradition attempt to crucify us. In fact, in fact, it would be very weird if you've been going to church for some time and you've never had a Judas seek to betray you. My friends, we are most like Christ whenever we come to expect such things and then decide to offer our lives in selfless love to these people anyways. That's what Jesus would do. That's what Jesus has already done with you and with me. If we run every time relationships get difficult, we're going to wind up being very lonely people in the end because we will find that we have run away from everybody. My friends, the way of the Christ is the way of the cross. And that difficult person, that person that irritates you the most, that you have to kneel beside week in and week out here at this altar rail, for you, for you, they are your cross. And as Jesus says, anyone who would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you are in the Beloit, Wisconsin area, and if you are looking for a new church home or a faith community, we would love to have you stop in and visit us at some point. We are at 212 West Grand Avenue in downtown Beloit. Our Sunday morning Eucharistic gatherings are in the main sanctuary at 10 a.m. We also have two additional services during the week, morning prayer from the Book of Common Prayer on Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. This group meets in the library, and we have a Wednesday Eucharistic gathering that meets at noon in the garden room. 
Lastly, our contemplative prayer group meets on Monday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. Of course, children are always welcome to come to any and all of our services. We have a special kids' pew in the back of our sanctuary where kids can play, roam, read, snack, and learn in the context of our liturgical community. Nursery and Children's Church is also available for those parents who would like to drop off their kids before the service begins. Whoever you are, wherever you are at in life, and wherever you come from, you don't have to know anything about churchy stuff or Christianity to fully participate in any of our services. Feel free to come with your doubts, with your heartaches, with your most genuine self. And feel free to ask questions, to fumble along through the the liturgy, and even feel free to pretend like you know what you're doing and what's going on. That's okay too. But please come as you are and watch yourself delve even more deeply into the person that you want to be. I am Father T.J. Humphrey. Thank you for listening today. God bless and be well.